And now we uh, turn to God's Word this morning, and uh, Mr. John Engbers is going to read that word for us. John. Scripture passage this morning is uh, coming from Philippians 2. We're going to start at verse 12 and go through verse 30. And you can find that on page 1,827 in your pew Bibles. Philippians 2, starting at verse 12. Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. Do everything without complaining or arguing, so that you may become blameless and pure, children of God without fault in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe as you hold out the word of life in order that I may boast on the day of Christ that I did not run or labor for nothing. But even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoiced with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, that I also may be cheered when I receive news about you. I have no one else like him who takes a genuine interest in your welfare. For everyone looks out for his own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know that Timothy has proved himself, both or because as a son with his father, he has served with me in the work of the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him as soon as I see how things go with me. And I am confident in the Lord that I myself will come soon. But I think it is necessary to send back to you Epaphroditus, my brother, fellow worker and fellow soldier, who is also your messenger, whom you sent to take care of my needs. For he longs for all of you and is distressed because you heard he was ill. Indeed, he was ill and almost died. But God had mercy on him, and not on him only, but also on me, to spare me sorrow upon sorrow. Therefore, I am all the more eager to send him, so that when you see him again, you may be glad and I may have less anxiety. Welcome him in the Lord with great joy, and honor men like him, because he almost died for the work of Christ, risking his life to make up for the help you could not give me. The word of the Lord. And thank you, John. <clears throat> for the reading of God's Word this morning. As I said, we're in the, the midst of a series on Philippians. You may want to keep your Bibles open this morning. We'll be concentrating on uh, those um, first six or seven verses, verses 12 to 18 this morning. And we'll be referring to those verses frequently. 
Sisters and brothers in Christ, um, Admiral William McRaven wrote a little book, also gave a number of commencement addresses with the theme of that book. The book was called Make Your Bed. You've probably heard of it. Make Your Bed. And the idea is this. If you want to change the world, start by making your bed. Start by making your bed. Before you attempt to do the really big things in life, maybe concentrate on the little things first. Because if you can't do the little things in life right, you'll never be able to do the big things right. And in many ways, this is what Paul is telling us in our text this morning. You know, Christians often have big things on our minds, don't we? Church growth, you know, ex- um, evangelizing the nations, ending world hunger, all of those kinds of things. But Paul is basically telling us this morning, you know, if you want to brighten up your world, if you want to dispel the darkness, if you want more people to know Jesus and to believe in Him and come to Him, then you may need to start with the little things. Actually, you need to start by recognizing that the little things really aren't so little. Now, this isn't going to be a three-point sermon this morning, all right? And for those of you who are worried, it's not going to be a four-point sermon either. We're just going to kind of walk through the text, and I want to pause in different places and just highlight or clarify some of the concepts that we find here. And so, we're going to begin right in verse 12, where John began this morning. My dear friends, writes Paul. Or in the Greek, it says more, my beloved friends. Okay, my beloved friends. And this harkens back to chapter 1, verse 8. Remember there, Paul told the Philippians that he longed for them. He longed to be with them. And he said, I long for you with the affection of Jesus Christ. With the affection of Christ. And what I want you to note here is that Paul isn't just expressing his own love for these people. What he's saying is there are three parties involved here. There are, these are Christ's people. Okay? People that Jesus loves. In other words, Jesus loves me, Jesus loves you, and I love you because Jesus loves you. That's what Christian community is all about. I don't love you because you make a good bowling partner, although that might help a little bit. I love you because Jesus loves you with the affection of Jesus Christ. That's Christian community. Now, the next uh, reference we find to chapter 1 comes shortly after that. He says, as you have always obeyed, as you have always obeyed. Paul and the Philippians, in other words, they have a history together. And that history is a history of obedience to God. Remember what Paul wrote in in chapter 1, from the first day until now. We are partners together in the gospel from the first day until now. We are partners. And so what you begin to see here is that Christian community has two basic things about it, at least two basic things, and that is we're united in Christ's love, in His love for us, but we're also united in our common obedience to Jesus Christ. We are all obeying the same master. If you look at verse 21 of of chapter 2, it 
It's kind of what Paul says about, about Timothy. He says, For everyone looks out to his own interests and not to those of Christ Jesus. And what he's saying here is those who do belong to Christ Jesus, those who are in the community of Jesus Christ, they actually put first, put first the interests of Christ Jesus. My own interests are second. What comes first is what Jesus wants. What comes first is obedience to him. Okay? Christ loves us, therefore we love one another, and our community is lived out in how we obey Jesus Christ in all things. That's just how Paul opens, okay? Now let's move on to the big phrase in verse 12. <clears throat> Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Friends, this verse has created a lot of controversy in the church over the years. And so let me just begin here by laying out what this verse does not mean, okay? What it does not mean. Paul is not laying out salvation in front of us like a large box of Ikea furniture and saying, okay, work it out. Put it together. It's on you. Something that would, you know, render in all of us a lot of fear and trembling, I'm guessing. But that's not what Paul is saying. He says, work out your salvation. He's not saying work for your salvation. He's not saying that you have to earn your own salvation. That has been done for us by Jesus, right? Jesus earned for us our salvation. So what Paul is saying is more like appropriate the salvation that Christ has earned for us. In other words, let it show make it real, work out what it means to be a saved people in the world. Another way to put it might be flesh out your salvation. Flesh out your salvation. And I have to pause here a moment just, just to make sure I'm, I'm being clear there, okay? Because I find that we often confuse those, or this phrase flesh out with the phrase flush out. They're not quite the same, all right? To flush something out means to cause it to leave a hiding place, right? Hunters flush birds out of the trees and things like that. We're not talking about flushing our salvation out of hiding here, although it might apply, actually. We're talking about fleshing it out, okay? Fleshing something out means to give it substance. It means to give it more detail, okay? Think of fleshing out a skeleton. You're putting skin on it. You're adding details to the outline. And that's what Paul is saying here. He's saying, okay, Christ has given you your salvation. Now, now flesh it out. Make it real. Give it some detail. Let it show. And, and something else we have to understand here is that Paul is speaking still to the church as a whole. He's still speaking to all of us. In other words, this is a plural command. Paul is saying, church, all of you, work out what it means to be God's saved people in the world. Okay? One individual cannot do this. You can't flesh out your salvation all by yourself. It takes a community of people to do this. 
And so Paul is saying, okay, Jesus as God, right? Jesus as God humbled himself and became a servant. And Jesus as a man humbled himself all the way to death, even death on a cross. He did this for you. Now, work out, flesh out what that means for you as a people collectively to have this mind in you. To have the mind of Christ in you be the kind of people that shows the world what the mind of Christ looks like on a day-to-day basis. And next we get this phrase, fear and trembling. Okay, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. And again, we need to be clear here, this does not mean... Go through life full of doubt and timidity, wondering if you're really saved. Go through life with fear and trembling. Again, that is not the meaning, not even close. What Paul is doing here is he's using an Old Testament phrase, like he so often does, a phrase that basically described the fear and the dread or the awe that pagans experienced whenever they came into the presence of the living God. Okay? This is the the fear and trembling that they experienced. And what Paul is doing is he's taking us back to the grandeur of last week's text. Okay? Remember how we ended that text. One day, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. In heaven and on earth and under the earth, every knee shall bow and every tongue confess. Well, Paul is taking us back now to that idea of grandeur. And what he's saying is, look, if the whole universe of created beings is someday going to pay homage to Jesus Christ, then don't you think that you people who already know Jesus for who he is, you already have awe and respect for this Jesus Christ. If you already know who he is, then don't you think you ought to be getting on with obedience now already? If you already know proper awe in the presence of God, then what are you waiting for? Flesh it out. Flesh it out with proper obedience in your lives. Now, let's go on to verse 13. For it's God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose. It's God who works in you. Okay, let me just point out two things here. First of all, this work of fleshing out your salvation, putting detail to it, it's really, really hard. It's work. And it's really, really hard work. In other words, you don't drift into this kind of obedience. You drift into disobedience. Obedience is really, really hard work. Remember how God puts it? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. Requires your mind and all of your strength. Remember what Paul said in verse 9 of the first chapter. This is my prayer, he says, 
that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Why does he pray that? He prays that because he knows how hard it is to love, to love like Christ loved us. It takes knowledge. It takes depth of insight. You have to put thought into it. You have to work at it. What Paul is saying here is that this is really hard stuff to work out your salvation, to flesh it out. Don't kid yourself. It's not easy. But now listen to the second thing he says. But never say that it's too hard. It's hard, but never say that it's too hard. Why not? Because it's actually God working in us. It's God working in us to will and to act. It's God who makes us even desire that there be this kind of obedience fleshed out in the world. And it's God who actually makes it happen to will and to act. We have Almighty God. We have Jesus Christ and His mind, His humble mind of a servant working in us to make all of this happen. And so you can say, friends, this is really, really hard, but don't ever say it's too hard. When you feel like that, what do you do? You say, Jesus, help me. Because it's not too hard for you. Jesus, help me. Now, with all of that said, with all of that set up, okay, we come to verse 14. What's Paul said? Okay, we ought to be busy fleshing out our salvation. Make it happen. What's he saying? We do this with God's help. Actually, he's doing it in us. There's nothing too hard for you. With all of that lead up, what is Paul going to say next? Get specific, Paul. What does it mean? What do we have to do in terms of living out our salvation? Do we have to sell our homes and move to Africa? Do we have to give all our money away to Haiti Relief? What are we supposed to do? Should we smash all of our idols? Should we end racism? Should we feed the world? You know, Paul can be pretty strong about these things. He can bring the hammer down on people. I mean, Mary Holst reminds us of, of some of the things that he actually instructs some of his other churches to get busy about doing, right? You remember them. To the Corinthians, he says, get rid of your sexual immorality. He says, I know you've got people in your congregation who are sleeping with their father's wife. Knock it off. In other words, it's big stuff, right? Significant stuff, he tells the Corinthians. And what does he say to the Ephesians? He says, well, hey, stop getting drunk. Stop sleeping around. Slaves and masters, work it out. There's freedom in Christ. Work it out. Jews and Gentiles, get along. Again, big stuff, right? What does he say to the Galatians? Hey, circumcision, it's done. It's over with. It's gone. Get used to it. Quit using the gospel to fuel your bigotry. Big stuff. What does he say to the Philippians? Look at verse 14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Do everything without complaining or arguing. You're like, what? 
All this lead up for that? That's it? Stop complaining and arguing? Paul, aren't we kind of majoring in minors here? I mean, this is like sitting in a boat with a gaping hole in the bottom and Paul's telling us it's drizzling. Why such big stuff for all of these other churches and such petty stuff for the Philippians? I guess the question is, is it really so petty? Complaining and arguing. You know, they seem so small and so insignificant until you realize that nothing destroys beautiful community. Nothing destroys Christian community so quickly and so thoroughly as complaining and arguing. Friends, if we understood how how much beautiful community means to the spread of the gospel and to dispelling darkness in the world, I don't think we would ever smirk again at Paul's commands here. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Make your bed. What does it mean to complain? Lots of different words you could use to translate here. Grumble, murmur, mutter. Paul, again, is using Old Testament language, right? We, have to, we cannot forget that the Israelites in the desert, they were like graduate-level mutterers, right? Manna? What? Manna, we're supposed to eat this stuff every day? Even Doritos come in flavors, right? Taco flavor, nacho cheese, cool ranch. Manna? Original flavor, that's it? Every day? Grumbling. Friends, to grumble, to mutter, to murmur, it's destructive. Grumbling latches on to the trivial, to stupid things, and it blows them way out of proportion, way out of proportion until they become really, really big things, bigger than all the big things in life. And grumbling, you know, it fails to distinguish between the imperative and the petty, between the essential and the trivial. It treats the trivial like it is essential. You just can't let it go. And when you grumble, the self, yourself, usually becomes dominant, so dominant that the rest of the community gets lost in your shadow. There's an eclipse of the sun, and darkness falls over everyone else to the point they can't be seen. Let me try and give you an example. One of my favorite things to grumble about is about all the stuff piled in my garage. 
Every time I walk into the garage, I think, what is all this stuff? Why is it here? Why is there a bookshelf here in a garage? Bookshelves don't belong in garages. They belong in houses. And then I remember the child that we're trying to help. And what is this car seat doing here? We don't need car seats anymore. We have enough of them. Do they have to be in the garage too? And then I remember the mom we're trying to help. Why do we have all these bikes? More bikes than people in the family. They're hanging all over the place. Banging my head against them. Why do we have all these bikes? And I forget the children that we sometimes have over who never get to ride a bike down a safe street other than when they come over to our place. It's a reason those bikes are there. But you see, when I grumble, what happens? It all becomes about me. Grumbling is anti-community. And friends, a lot of us don't have to think too far back to the last time we grumbled, do we? Maybe it was on the way to church this morning. Or, or maybe it happened when you got here. Maybe it was about the temperature in the room or the songs that we were singing or the sound or how there's still a pandemic upon us. But friends, grumbling is dangerous. Grumbling is habitual. It's selfish. It's contagious. And it's ruinous of community. And then you add to that arguing. Okay? You don't necessarily need a partner to grumble. You can grumble all by yourself. When you argue, it's like grumbling on steroids, and it also brings someone else into the equation. You're in conflict with someone. Okay? I think of brothers and sisters. I think of husbands and wives. I think of classmates. I think of church members and council members. I think of social media and all the grumbling and complaining and arguing that even Christians do, as if no one is listening, as if none of it is real, as if it doesn't count, as if it doesn't matter. And I think of Paul. Do everything without complaining or arguing. And I think of how hard this is for so many of us to break out of this kind of habit, to let it go. And I think, yeah, but it's not too hard. Because God is in us to work to work out his will. All of this is so that we might become blameless and pure. We might become blameless and pure. What, what's the idea here? 
Well, after being told to sit down in class, a little boy looked at his teacher and he said, I'm maybe sitting down on the outside, but on the inside I'm still standing up. And that little boy understood the idea of holiness and integrity. He understood what Paul was getting at here. To be whole means that what's on the outside matches what's on the inside. And what's on the inside of us as Christians is the mind of Christ. And that's what should be on the outside as well. The mind of Christ, inside out. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Make your bed. And when this happens, Paul says, you, you will shine like stars in the universe. Now, that's not a very difficult image to understand, is it? When do, when do stars shine? When do you see them? At night, in the dark. Paul says we live in a crooked and depraved world. We live in a dark world. Very few of us would argue that. And in this world, he says, Christians should brighten things up. We should, more than that, help people see where they're going. We should even serve like those, those steady, constant points in the sky that, that some people used to use for navigation to help them get to where they're supposed to be going. Christians are supposed to be like that, says Paul. And you will be like that. You can be like that. If you quit your complaining, arguing, Imagine for a moment, friends, if Christians were known for never complaining. Imagine what that would be like, right? Imagine for a moment if the city of Brookfield sat down to kind of assess their decision at the beginning of the summer to close off Lily Road access to North Avenue. And they looked back on that and said, well, you know, there are two, two, Christ, two Christian churches on that stretch of road, and so actually there was very little complaining. Imagine what that would be like. Or, or what if someone said, you know, the powers that be decided that, that everyone going to this concert had to wear a mask. No ifs, ands, or buts about it. And you had to wear them the whole time, even though it was outside. But, because the whole stadium was full of Christians, nobody complained. Imagine that. Or, or as uh, Mary Halst uh, once said, Gives another example. Imagine hearing this. Well, due to, due to bad weather, the 737 was stuck on the tarmac for two hours. No place to go, no air conditioning for the people. But, because the plane was full of Christians, nobody complained. Imagine, imagine what that would be like. Imagine how that would impact a dark world like ours. Can you imagine how much more effective it would be for a community like that to hold out the word of truth, the word of life in a dark world? Friends, you know, the next time you hear Christians pondering big things, 
Maybe they're, you know, wondering why the church doesn't seem to be growing in North America like it should be, like it could be. Why our evangelism, you know, isn't more effective? And they start throwing reasons out like, well, maybe it's the music that's being played in the church, or maybe it's, you know, the old-fashioned name on the front of the church, or maybe it's how uncomfortable the pews are, or, or maybe it's all those references to the cross. Maybe it's all that stuff. Maybe you could just suggest into that conversation that we look just a little bit deeper and look just a little harder at ourselves and ask, are we doing everything without complaining and arguing? It would be hard to change that, wouldn't it? not too hard because it's God working in us to will and to act friends we have this table before us this morning and on this table is the mind of Christ the mind of Christ in flesh now work it out flesh it out For the sake of the world, flesh out what it really looks like, what the mind of Christ really looks like. That's what we're being called to this morning. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you That the mind of Christ didn't stay in some ethereal realm, some realm of thought and knowledge, but the mind of Christ took on flesh and became a servant, a human being who went all the way to the cross to pay for our sins. And that mind of Christ is enfleshed once again on this table before us. And as we eat and as we drink, Lord, we pray that you will transform us once again into your people who leave this place and go back into a dark world as lights shining in the sky, as people fleshing out our very salvation in detail, as people living out the mind of Christ. Lord, forgive us our sins and by your strength make us new and give us anew your mind within us. This is our prayer this morning. In Jesus' name, amen.